Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the global struggle to acquire and distribute sufficient doses of vaccine in an effort to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. It is not going as well as one might hope. Clips today are from In the Thick, The Mother Jones Podcast, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, Citations Needed, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and Counterspin. The number of deaths in India is devastating, but it's been reported as, believe it or not, a serious undercount as well. So last Thursday on Democracy Now!, Rana Ayub is an Indian journalist and global opinions writer for The Washington Post, shared this about the situation there. Let's hear what she had to say. It is an apocalyptic situation in India right now. It's heartbreaking not just to be a citizen of this country, but it's heartbreaking to be a journalist who is bearing witness to the events that are unfolding in India, especially uh, with the number of COVID deaths that we are witnessing. And many of them in their early 30s. The two friends that I lost were in their mid-30s. Their families are still in the ICU. Uh, Yesterday, 22 patients lost their lives at one go in a hospital after a tank that was providing oxygen to the ventilators leaked for 30 minutes, and all 22 patients lost their lives in a span of an hour. I mean, it's like this country is breathless on Twitter, in hospitals, whenever I'm going to report, everybody is begging for oxygen. Uh, as I'm talking, hospitals after hospitals in the national capital, not far from the prime minister's residence, are petitioning the high court of the country to, to tell them that we have no oxygen left in our hospitals. State governments are accusing each other of oxygen theft, that they are stealing each other's oxygen tankers. It's that kind of a situation. So we're basically witnessing a global medical, uh, and I don't toss this word out lightly, apartheid. Peter, what needs to be done to ensure global vaccine equity, in your opinion? Well, you know, just so you know, I'm a vaccine scientist. I co-lead a group at Texas Children's that's developed a low-cost, what we call people's vaccine for COVID-19 recombinant protein vaccine that's now being Mm -hmm. accelerated in India by Biological E, BioE. So the announcement this weekend from the Biden administration, they're going to support BioE for their vaccines. They're making two. They're making the J&J vaccine and they're making our vaccine. So hopefully that that will help a lot. I think part of the problem has been that there was an effort in place called the COVAX sharing facility to try to promote vaccine equity. The issue is the vaccines aren't there. Mm. And part of that was the science policymakers put huge amount of emphasis on innovation. And we got some really interesting vaccines, right? The the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which I got, mm-hmm. and the Moderna vaccine, and then the adenovirus vectored vaccines from AstraZeneca and J&J. We have never scaled those technologies before. And so a very high-risk strategy was taken, and whether or not we can make enough of those vaccines for the world is unclear. Remember the size of this task. You have 1.1 billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people in Latin America, about half a billion people in the smaller low-income countries of Asia. That's 2 billion people. We're talking 4 to 5 billion doses of vaccine. Where does that come from? Well, it's not clear to me that you can scale the mRNA vaccines to that level. It's still a new technology. Yeah. So I pushed very hard and didn't get very far to say, look, 
We've been working on coronavirus vaccines for the last decade. We've developed recombinant protein vaccines. It's not sexy. It's the same technology used to make the hepatitis B vaccine that's been around for 40 years by microbial fermentation and yeast, but it works. And it's we could do it for $1.50 a dose. And, you know, it was really tough to get the science policymakers behind it. I had to raise money privately. At the first few months of the pandemic, you know, it was a terrible time for me because, one, I was became an expert in anti-vaccine disinformation over the years. I was one of the first to call what the Trump White House was doing, an anti-science disinformation campaign. That was really stressful. And then raising money, and we did finally. We raised about 4 to $5 million, developed the vaccine and privately, and then mm-hmm. now transferred it to BioE. So the problem is the vaccine's not there, and that needs to be scaled. We're too dependent on the multinational companies without having the ability to produce vaccines locally. Almost no vaccines are produced on the African continent. Mm -hmm. Same with the Middle East and Latin America with a couple of exceptions. Mm -hmm. And that's the long-term answer. We've got to fix that. And I think we can, but for now, it's trying to accelerate production of vaccines as quickly as we can. And, And India right now produces about half the vaccines for the world. They've excelled in this. The Serum Institute of India, mm-hmm. Biological E, Barat. And then we had the problem was there was a export ban on materials for those vaccines, so they couldn't make them. So the Biden administration now has lifted that for these companies, which is going to help a lot. Then the other question is whether Prime Minister Modi will allow these Indian vaccine manufacturers to export vaccine or whether they're going to have to keep it Mm. inside India. Mm. So there's this domino effect that's looking pretty dire right now. And the result of all this, there's about half a dozen countries that will have fully vaccinated its population by the summer. It's, you know, the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., maybe a few Western European countries in Israel maybe a few others scattered, but that's it. So how far our economy can grow at that point is really unclear if there's devastation all around and and all of these variants. So I'm really troubled. We're all connected, people. We are connected. And what's even, I think, important to think about is how countries that we consider quote-unquote developed or the wealthier countries, how we are complicit in the in these other governments of underdeveloped or poor countries, and yet we aren't willing to do more to step up to help them in, in these times of crises. Yet part of the reason they're in these crises is because of, you know, historical actions and inactions by these other countries. So we will all suffer if we don't help these other countries. It can't be this idea of nationalism where we just focus on ourselves because that will not get us anything if we think about just the basic ideas of global health. is the senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He specializes in research around consumer pricing, intellectual property, trade, and how when it comes to medical patents, these are literally issues of life and death. Dean Baker, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me on. We've been talking about India on today's show. India has been leading a push at the World Trade Organization, WTO, to do away with patents on vaccines to treat covid What difference can that make to the crisis that's happening there right now? Well, unfortunately, it can't make an immediate difference because the issue is, of course, we need vaccines and we won't get more vaccines overnight, regardless of whether we had the patents or not. 
But the point is, if we didn't have the patents, it would facilitate the transfer of technology, both within the U.S., Europe, to, to other companies, and also to the developing world countries like India do have considerable capacity to, to produce vaccines. In fact, many of the vaccines are already produced there, Brazil, South Africa. There's other countries in the developing world that could be producing vaccines. And even getting rid of the patents. We're not getting them up and running tomorrow. But the point is, this is going to be here for a while. I mean, that's the unfortunate truth is the pandemic's not about to go away. So if we can get vaccine production up and running in some of these countries or more in the U.S. and Europe in three, four, five months, that will still be an enormous help. So we shouldn't think we're going to change the situation in India right away. But hopefully we can get these vaccines, uh, more vaccines produced in time to have a very big impact on the spread of the pandemic in South Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, other places. Will this decision to lift patent protections be enough to open up distribution, you think? No, it's it's a very, very big step. But as many people have pointed out, there's industrial know-how that countries will need to, to get up to speed, basically. So the main talk has been about the messenger RNA vaccines. These are the Moderna and, and Pfizer vaccines. And it's a complex manufacturing process that most even experienced vaccine manufacturers, they, 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 they have not done yet. So they will need expertise. And what we really need is for the Biden administration to pressure pressure these companies to to transfer that expertise. Now, uh, President Biden already did that with uh, with Johnson and Johnson. That, that's actually not an mRNA vaccine, but another another effective vaccine. He got Merck to he got them to transfer their technology to Merck, which is now using some un, idle manufacturing capacity to produce the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. What what President Biden has to do? He has authority on the Defense Production Act to try to pressure them. Now, where that comes down, you know, at what point do the companies say, no, we're not going to do it? Um, it, That's hard to say. And this is an area it could conceivably end up in court. But my guess is at the end of the day, the companies don't want to be seen as being obstacles. They will get compensated too. So just to be clear, you know, this idea that, oh, they're, they're being whipped into doing something, they will get compensated. They might not get as much money as they want, but they can get compensated. And one of the points I made, I don't know if anyone want to go this route, is at the end of the day, uh, the government could go around, let's say Moderna says, no, we're not transferring our technology to anyone. You could pay off their top engineers, give them a million dollars a month to uh, put blueprints on, on the web, to hold webinars, hold hands-on training with people in India, Brazil, other countries. Um, my guess is you'd get them to do it. I mean, you'd have to protect them from legal consequences because Moderna would surely sue them. But you know, that would be a way to do it. Again, I hope nothing would ever come to that. But the idea that we're somehow hostage to, to these drug companies, that, that's really not true. How important will patent policies be to getting the world out of this pandemic? Well, it's it's a huge, huge deal. And one of the things I think is underappreciated is I mean, there's very strong humanitarian reasons. I mean, no one could be happy seeing what's going on in India with, you know, the suffering there, the overwhelmed hospitals, people dying who could 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 be saved. Um, but the reality is, even beyond that, if we allow the, the pandemic to spread unchecked, we know there'll be mutations. There already have been mutations. And the biggest risk from the standpoint of people in the United States, Europe, country, rich countries where people have been largely vaccinated, the big risk is that we'll see a mutation that's vaccine resistant. And if that happens, we're back to ground zero. So uh, I've heard people say, well, fine, these 
mRNA vaccines are very flexible, and they are. I mean, I, I'm no expert on it, but I know people who are, and they're, they're a great breakthrough. But the reality is, even if, say, it takes them a week, two weeks, they develop a new one, well, they're not going to be able to produce hundreds of millions of doses in a week or two weeks. So we're back at ground zero, facing lockdowns, more infections, more deaths. So this isn't just a matter of getting, you know, protecting people in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, which we should care about. But it's also, if we want to be able to be secure against this, this, this pandemic, we really have to contain it everywhere in the world, not just in the United States, not just in Europe. We've been talking about vaccine patents. Are there similar patent issues with things like COVID testing and other COVID treatments? There are. And uh, again, the, the resolution that India and South Africa put forward before the WTO would have removed protection for all of those for the duration of the pandemic. And it would be great to see that because, again, things that we might be able to afford in the United States, treatments that might be thousands of dollars, at least if we have insurance, we could afford it. It's altogether unaffordable in most of the developing world. So it would be great to see uh, patents on those items suspended as well. So I, I don't think uh, many uh, many people I know, advocates who are pushing on the vaccine are saying, well, this doesn't go far enough. Um, it's a huge, huge step. But yeah, we should like to see, it, see the patents suspended on those as well, because we really should want to see every people in the world protected as much as possible. And again, it's a, it's a story where if you talk about a treatment costing thousands of dollars, that's out of the reach of people in the developing world. But in very rare cases, are these drugs ever actually expensive to produce and distribute? So a treatment that might be sold for thousands of dollars here, if you remove the patent protection, most likely you're talking about one or two, three hundred dollars, and quite often even less than that. So it's almost invariably patents that make drugs expensive. They're not expensive to produce. Dean, any final thoughts? Anything else we should be paying attention to when it comes to getting out of this pandemic? Well, this is kind of a different line, but I I do work in different areas. And one of the things that's debated was the extent to which people are not seeking jobs because the $300 weekly unemployment insurance supplements. And just, you know, being in different areas, I go, okay, so we're worried we're giving people too much money because we're giving them $300 a week extra when they're unemployed. And we're talking about Pfizer and Merck not making enough money when we're giving them billions of dollars. And I don't know, I just find that very ironic. And, uh, you know, again, it goes to uh, how how policy distribute determines the distribution of income because if we didn't give these companies patent monopolies they won't have a leg to stand on right now so this was entirely a policy issue and obviously there's huge health outcomes but there's also an enormous story here about the distribution of income the significance of these meetings and what difference it would make for people in the Philippines and in Asia overall, in the global south, for that matter? Well, uh, as you know, because of the shortage of uh, vaccines, you know, we are uh, in a situation where um, I, uh, about only about uh, 0.2 or 0.3% uh, of Uh, you know, the population of the global south has had access to vaccines. And here, for instance, in um, in in the Philippines, uh, it's only been around um, 260,000 people or 
0.025 of the population uh, of 110 million people who have had access to vaccines. And, you know, there's no certainty about when these vaccines will arrive. Uh, we have mainly gotten um, a few shipments from AstraZeneca, uh, a, a significant number of donations from China, and just the last two days, um, uh, the Sputnik V or Sputnik V from Russia uh, arrived. Uh, so, uh, but with respect to the uh, Western uh, vaccines, um, there's a very great deal of uncertainty uh, when those would in fact be coming uh, because of the fact, you know, that um, a lot of um, vaccines that should have been going to the South have been hoarded by the European Union and by the United States. If you, you know, the press officer uh, uh, or of the Biden administration, Misaki, uh, has in fact said that our policy is to be oversupplied. And one of the things that, uh, you know, the Biden administration did in response to the situation in India uh, was to say it was going to be sending about 60 million doses of AstraZeneca. And it was found out in a, in a, in a report in the New York Times that those are potentially spoiled vaccines that uh, were produced by this uh, factory in Maryland that, uh, you know, uh, you know, had been um, contaminated. That also produced so, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that led to uh, a um, halt on the Johnson Johnson vaccine, that Johnson & Johnson AstraZeneca somehow contaminated each other at this factory. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when people heard that, you know, my God, they're sending spoiled vaccines to India. And that was taken as sort of, you know, uh, well, let's send the spoiled stuff to the global south and we're going to keep the good stuff, uh, you know, here in the United States. So that's been sort of the mixed messaging that has been taking place uh, as, uh, with the rhetoric of the uh, Biden uh, administration. Uh, I think it is uh, going to be very important what happens in Geneva uh, over the next uh, two days. As Laurie Wallach says, the decision uh, point is, will the U.S. stop blocking negotiations, okay, uh, or will it continue uh, Trump's uh, policy? And, you know, this is the inflection point. Um, for the Biden administration with respect to the global south. If it fails this one, there's just going to be tremendous distrust uh, of U.S. foreign policy initiatives. So the test uh, for Biden and, uh, you know, for the global south has come very early. Uh, but then you don't choose the time when these things, uh, uh, you know, come on. And um, as, as far as I know at this point, it's... Um, uh, we don't know exactly what is the thinking uh, of the administration going into Geneva, and um, it's it's kept its um, cards very close to its vest. And um, but as I said in my 
column uh, in my guest editorial in the New York Times, um, Mr. Biden, you know, knows, you know, what is the right thing to do. And it, the question is, will he have the courage to do the right thing? Um, Walden Bello, have you gotten a vaccine? Yes, I have. Um, as a senior, uh, uh, I was uh, a priority. It's called A2. And uh, we were get given the first dose of the vaccine. Okay, so seniors in my city uh, uh, got the first dose of the vaccine. But, you know, the vast numbers of people aside from seniors and from um, uh, healthcare workers, frontline workers, have not gotten the vaccine yet. You know, so and will we get the second dose? We don't know. It all depends, again, on developments in India and developments in 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 in, in different parts of the world. Mm. Now we would not have been facing this supply problem if uh, when the um, India and South Africa had um, proposed uh, the waiver the first time around October of last year and the US and the rich countries, the other rich countries hadn't blocked it, we could have moved already to be able to, you know, get the formulas or the vaccine, the technologies to 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 to, uh, to bring them out, uh, repurposing, as Laurie said, you know, the 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 the, the big um, um, uh, pharmaceutical capacities uh, of a number of different countries in the global south, like South Africa, India, Thailand. Um, so that could have already um, begun. But here then is the tragedy that, you know, we lost all that time. We lost about six months because the U.S. was just not cooperating. It just was so short-sighted and it was caving in all the time to the pharmaceutical companies who are tremendously unpopular in the global south, but also in the United States, because this, this, these companies are just raking it. As we heard earlier, the billions that Pfizer is making, you know, uh, it's mainly out of the biggest uh, moneymaker uh, has been the Pfizer vaccine over the last several months, you know. So it's, it's, it's this very, very big contrast uh, between what are the needs of humanity and what are the needs of these people in the the drug um, the drug industry, which uh, not only are they making tremendous profits for their shareholders, but we're talking about executives that had these people, these 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 corporations, um, making tremendous amounts, uh, you know, in terms of their salaries, ranging from around. 15 billion to 20, 15 million to 25 million a year. Uh, you know, these are the people basically uh, among the 1% who are making these decisions uh, to block um, what, you know, would be benefits for the global poor, which is to live, you know, allow them to live. So this is, this is really, if, you, if I may put it this way, uh, you know, this shows, you know, the tremendous, you know, irrationality of global capitalism, you know, that, you know, where profits for a few 
takes precedence over the lives of many. This is why my sense is that the, the dynamics of this, uh, this period uh, of uh, the pandemic has really exposed why we need to overcome capitalism to get out of this system that allows these decisions to be made by a few, creates tremendous inequalities, and allows a lot of people to die because, you know, the, the, the medicines or the vaccines that would allow them to live are being blocked. Remember, all of these vaccines, in one form or another, have received billions of dollars. Whether it's in the Pfizer-BioNTech, where $500 million came from the German government, but there was $1.5 billion promised up front, a pre-order from the U.S. government, whether the vaccine worked or not. I mean, that's a pretty nice, um, that's a pretty nice sort of uh, insurance policy there to go ahead and develop these and the development of mRNA technology and all of these technologies have been, have been uh, a, a function of enormous government investment. But that's not even really the point, right? I mean, the point isn't whether the U.S. government and other governments have already invested in this stuff and should own part of it, although that's a separate argument, which I would also make. But now at least... Now that the Biden administration has been forced into announcing a commitment to waive the patents, and we'll see what the implications of that are. But now that they've been doing that, now we're seeing the sort of knock on a little bit more honest conversation about why folks were against the waiving of the patents. And here it is. I present to you Bloomberg News. You have to be really careful with the language we use around this conversation. One thing the left has done has monopolized the moral high ground with a single perspective. And what it does is it does not allow people to ask legitimate questions. And I think the starting position is not that the Democrats want to help low and middle income countries and the conservatives and Republicans do not. I don't see that. It's about how you help those countries. And that's the debate we need to have on a program like this. And when I hear you say things like Senator Warren would like the waiver. So it's set up as if there is bullying from the left morally because they're taking some type of moral high ground. But we really should be talking about how to do this. And in other words, there is no moral response to the idea that we should share vaccine technology with other countries. It's really just a question of like, well, how can we help these countries the best? But there is no one making the argument that we should stop at allowing these IP waivers. No one's making the argument we should allow the IP waivers and not give vaccines to these countries. No. In fact, we've already made a commitment to send um, uh, 60 million doses to, um, to India. We should be sending as many doses as we can around the world. No one has any compunction with that. So it's not a really question of how it's like, why would we constrain ourselves? 
Why wouldn't we throw the kitchen sink at this? But it is amazing how much they talk about this and never actually articulate what they say they can't say. And 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 th- that's such a key point because they're not even saying that that argument anymore. That's what I'm because, saying. Because they know, right, because they know it's so flimsy that, yeah, we can do both. We can give them vaccine doses now and we can waive the IP so that there's mass production down the line. <laughs> Continue. So Warren would like the waiver for IP. I think the worry that people have is that Senator Warren doesn't want it to stop there. She wants it to go further. Isn't that the real debate down in D.C. at the moment, that the freedoms people have lost, the freedom of movement, the freedom of speech, arguably, which is an argument going on down in D.C. at the moment. And if then we get into property rights, does it stop there just in the crisis or does it go further? Isn't that the ultimate concern right now? That is uh, not necessarily the immediate concern, but the ultimate concern. I I think you could make potentially a pretty persuasive slippery slope argument about how far this goes and what the effect would be uh, potentially on vaccine production for uh, who knows if this is even going to be the last pandemic uh, that I lived through. We don't know when the next time we're going to have to have such a worldwide effort uh, to ramp up production of vaccines. So the long-term concerns are there. And when I say the, the moral uh, the moral arguments that have won the Biden administration over to be clear these are moral arguments but they're not the only moral arguments yep. involved in this um so the, the that has been so far the winning moral argument in terms of winning over the biden administration which is in control of this uh but it, it does raise a lot of questions going forward for the long term but really a, a lot of the conversation in washington is more on the immediate threats uh it, even though there are concerns that mostly are being expressed on the right. Uh, A lot of, especially when you hear the Biden administration, a lot of the rhetoric around this is how to produce this vaccine right now as quickly as possible. Yep. They're complaining that's the only moral argument that's being presented. And they're not presenting any alternate moral arguments because there isn't one. Exactly. But the the long term, and let's be clear on what they mean by uh, the long term and the slippery slope here. (laughs) They are concerned, and they're not telling all of their concerns. They're, the ones that they're expressing are, we don't know how this is going to impact vaccine production in the future. In other words, what's going to happen when we have all of this capacity to produce vaccines and we no longer can deploy the argument, they don't have the capacity to produce vaccines, why would we give them the IP? And not only just in general for vaccines for Gosh knows what's going on, but we're not going to have the leverage to say this if there's another pandemic. I mean, literally, their argument is if we build vaccine creation production capacity, the pressure to give these other countries that cannot afford to develop because look there's just not other countries or there's not as many other countries that can give five different companies a billion dollars to go produce a vaccine and roll the dice and when they say a slippery slope argument what they mean is it's a slippery slope towards that exact that's what they're saying. saying that that there will be 
an understanding worldwide that vaccine production can be done quickly. And so he says this may not be the only pandemic that I lived through. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. The fact that we should set up set up infrastructure for the next pandemic as climate change causes more encroachment into the wilderness. And as animals continue to pass these diseases onto humans, there will be another one down the line. So the slippery slope argument is purely about pharmaceutical profits. Think about how myopic and how sick in the head you have to be to think that that is the biggest issue here. No, no, no. This is a trend in the correct direction as more pandemics come around. Well, and I will go further um, and say, forget pandemics. Um, I hope this slope is incredibly slippery. In fact, I hope it's, uh, you know, an elevator uh, heading right down to the bottom of the slope (laughs) uh, because there is no reason why for uh, a whole host of vaccinations and frankly, other drugs that we should not be um, uh, we, we should not be investing billions of dollars into the development of these things and not use them for where they're needed around the world. We should no longer be sinking money into the development of drugs and of technologies and whatnot. And allowing them to be gatekeeped by private entities that get these uh, this money. I'm sorry. It's yeah, just hey, we hey, should hey, not be doing it. So Bloomberg. I hope the slope is super, super slippery. Bloomberg will do you one better. <coughs> Remove IP for all medicine. There you go. As many have been very clear to note that now hundreds, if not, I think maybe over a thousand progressive groups, including Doctors Without Borders, Human Rights Watch, Oxfam, Public Citizen, over 400 members of various EU parliaments, because the European Union is still one of the major barriers to this. The European Union still opposes this, which we'll get into later. They are very clear to say that the IP waiver is an essential first step, but it is not everything. There needs to be copyright information, technology transfer There needs to be actual staffing help where people come explain mRNA or or help set up the manufacturing. But as a prerequisite to do any of that, to really allow the scaling up of manufacturing, there has to be this TRIPS waiver at the WTO. There is basically not a single public health or activist organization. And I can say this with pretty stern confidence. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. There is not a single one who's in this space who does not support the TRIPS waiver that is not meaningfully funded by the Gates Foundation or for the pharmaceutical industry. Those are the only ones that are still holding up this barrier. And so in response to this, the pharmaceutical industry, corporate interests, the same people who make up the Chamber of Commerce who've opposed the TRIPS waiver, which is Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, Cisco Systems, Live Nation, Delta, Verizon, they all fund an organization called Global Citizen, who is very much also funded by the Gates Foundation, as well as Johnson & Johnson, who's one of the three major COVID vaccine manufacturers. All these corporations, either through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or through their own lobbying efforts, as reported on by The Intercept, have spent a considerable amount of money to prevent the TRIPS waiver. They are now putting on and help funding something called Vax Live. Oh, yeah. The We Are the World for COVID-19. Which is a concert on May 8th 
headlined by Selena Gomez, Jennifer Lopez, an assortment of dopey liberal celebrities. And co-sponsored by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan. So this is uh, pretty greasy stuff. It is made in a lab just for Citations Needed episode because it sounds good, right? It sort of sounds benign. Global Citizen positions itself, again, despite being a reputation, a laundromat for corporate interests. Comcast is a huge funder as well. They're presenting themselves as the concert is to promote vaccine equity. Now, it is partly about doing a campaign for domestic vaccine usage, which is sort of fine enough. I have no problem with that. But for the most part, it's branding itself as promoting vaccine equity in the global south, despite the fact that the parties that are putting it on, namely the Gates Foundation, Johnson & Johnson, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and these various corporate interests are the biggest barriers to the TRIPS waiver. And you'll be surprised to learn, as we say on the show, that Global Citizen does not, in any of its press, any of its materials, any of its website, support the TRIPS waiver, despite the fact that almost every single actual progressive group that isn't a corporate laundromat and isn't funded by the Gates Foundation does support it. So what they're trying to do, in my humble estimation, Nima, and you Tell me if I'm wrong with, I know this is the theme of the show, is they're trying to take all the energy and outrage caused by what we're seeing in India and caused by what we're seeing in the global south, which we all knew would happen. Activists have been predicting this since last summer. This was all inevitable. It was all predictable. That they're trying to take the movement to free what they're calling people's vaccine or, or free the patents. There's various sort of hashtags and calls for what they're calling it. But basically, it's just a variation of the TRIPS waiver. They're trying to take all that energy and they're trying to distract and to channel it into this totally bourgeois, corporate-backed, Gates-backed, limited hangout where they're trying to raise money for COVAX. Now, COVAX was a program started largely by corporate interests, pharmaceutical companies, and the Gates Foundation as a way – because here's the deal, right? You rewind to last February, Nima. We all knew there was going to be inequity. This was inevitable. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they tried to get ahead of it because they knew that the logical follow-up in the face of – 85, 90% of vaccines going to the top 10 wealthiest countries was going to be, holy shit, why don't we make this intellectual property free for everyone and force pharmaceutical companies to share information with developing, quote unquote, developing countries so they could scale up and manufacture their own vaccines so they're not dependent on the United States to give them their vaccines. Right. But of course, that can't happen. That's not acceptable. So what they did is they got ahead of it, came up with COVAX, which is sponsored by the World Health Organization, UNICEF variety of pharmaceutical companies and funded by the Gates Foundation was supposed to deliver over 2 billion vaccines. Thus far, it has done just under 50 million, which is not nearly scratching the surface. It's been an abject failure. And of course, that's because it exists to protect IP because what they want to do is they want to go the charity route because they knew that there was going to be global outrage. And now that that's failed, and then there's a real concerted effort of late, again, lawmakers everywhere, everyone is basically not paid by Bill Gates or Big Pharma supports this. And now they're trying to redirect that outrage and that energy back into this COVAX bullshit, which has failed. Now, having said that, COVAX, as our guest explained on both episodes we've had on this, is perfectly fine. It's, you know, donate vaccines. That's better than nothing. But it is absolutely small time, small potatoes, and fundamentally about protecting the global IP enforcement regime. Exactly. It's clearly not enough. And what it does is it really does shift the burden from a communal response, and not just a communal response, but a global response. This is something that we need to literally get through together as a planet, not by virtue of charity from rich countries to poor countries. Harry and Meghan are campaign chairs, and in one of the trailers that they released for this concert to reunite the world, is what they're calling it, you know, it starts off with, uh, it's, it's, it's so, it's instant death. It, it's awful if you watch this. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. But, you know, it says, it's time to end this pandemic. 
reunite the world. But first, everyone everywhere needs confidence in the vaccine, needs access to the vaccine. And so it gets to the access route. And because it's talking about access, you have the Sussexes, Harry and Meghan, releasing a statement that, among other things, said this, quote, Over the past year, our world has experienced pain, loss, and struggle. Together. Now, we need to recover and heal. Together. We can't leave anybody behind. We will all benefit. We will all be safer. When everyone, everywhere, has equal access to the vaccine. And it continues with this. We must pursue equitable vaccine distribution and, in that, restore faith in our common humanity. The mission couldn't be more critical or important, end quote. So not only does that say nothing, but it's saying equal access to the vaccine, which in the view of Global Citizen, in the view of VaxLive, in the view of the Gates Foundation and its supporters, equal access means charity. The show has undergone several changes in the past year, hopefully all for the better, and I just wanted to tell you about it for a minute. Transcripts were the first big change. We now produce full transcripts for every episode with the help of our monosyllabic transcriptionist trio. I also introduced voiced mails, which allow me to more seamlessly include comments from those who prefer to email the show rather than leaving a voicemail. I, I don't think the other changes have been so obvious to you, but they have been major for me. I now work with a team of two researchers who help produce the main show, and we've really taken our members-only content to the next level by bringing those researchers onto the bonus show. And besides all the great things we say, obviously, I am really proud of how great those bonus shows sound, how clean they are. In fact, they sound so good they literally sparked Nick from California to ask how we managed to pull it off. For your bonus shows, do you go through and manually take out most or all of the filler words, or do you have software? This possibility is that you don't use filler words, but I've been paying more attention to even other podcasts now, and I don't believe it. There must be some kind of secret sauce. And the truth is, he's right, there is a secret sauce. I started using some new software last year that has been integral to all of these changes. It does amazing things. It creates transcripts with AI-powered voice-to-text technology that only needs to be lightly cleaned up by humans. And once the audio is turned into text, it becomes searchable and editable, just like a text document, which is incredibly helpful. And then in reverse, as with voicemails, it can also convert text into speech. It can use the transcript to automatically find and clean up unwanted filler words from recordings. That's what Nick was so excited about. It's cloud-based for easy collaboration, which has become essential to us. And the real kicker is it makes editing easier than any other app I've ever heard of, because editing audio in this program is done by editing the transcript itself, meaning that editing audio is as easy as editing any text document you've ever used. So that's all the ways I use it, and I don't even push it to its full limits because it can do video too. 
So you could use it for podcasting like me, or YouTube videos, or lectures, or explainers, or screen recordings, or internal communications, and just about anything else you might want to record. It's free to use some of the basic features, so there's no reason to not check it out. My newest favorite feature of theirs is that they finally launched their affiliate program, which means I'm now an affiliate of theirs, and so you can click through from our show notes, and you can get all the rest of the details for yourself, knowing that if it's something that you're interested in and want to use it, your eventual purchase will help support the production of this show. I'm actually going to spend the rest of this piece trying to clear up some of the biggest myths flying around. And some are pretty easy to debunk quickly, like the claims that Bill Gates is using the vaccine to put a microchip in all of us. For the record, there are no microchips in the COVID vaccine. That rumor is based on the fact that the Gates Foundation funded research years ago, which is frequently taken out of context. In that study, Researchers looked into creating an invisible ink that could potentially be injected along with a vaccine in order for populations like refugee kids to be able to retain vaccine records without paperwork. Over time, the original context was lost, contorted and kind of telephoned its way into becoming something something Bill Gates microchips on Facebook, a claim which, if you think about it for just a second, doesn't make sense. Because if your main concern is that Bill Gates could use microchips to track you, he can already do that. That's what your fucking phone is. Now, another more reasonable sounding concern has to do with just how fast the vaccine came together. Their worry is that we are being used as guinea pigs for a rushed, untested vaccine. It is an understandable thing to worry about, even if some express it in less than ideal ways. Tell me why you're concerned. Six words. Testing, 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 and more testing. It's important if you're going to put something into your body that it's absolutely and totally tested. I tell you what I admire about that guy, his confidence, because I don't think I've seen anyone more self-assured than the man who just promised six words, said seven, and counted five, all without even flinching. That guy is so secure in his thinking, he can be wrong about numbers on camera twice and do it with an unbreaking smile. But it is worth understanding exactly how the vaccine was able to come to market so fast, because researchers had been working on vaccines against other coronaviruses for years. So, when COVID-19 hit, they had a significant head start. Operation Warp Speed, as it was famously called, wasn't about rushing the science. It was about significantly cutting through bureaucracy that could have otherwise slowed it down. As this vaccine researcher explains. Did you ever imagine that we'd be able to develop a vaccine in 12 to 18 months? The short answer is no. We were able to compress the timeline so that things that we would normally do in a linear fashion a to B, we actually start the F and the E at the same time as A and B. Exactly. They took steps that usually happen sequentially and save time by running them simultaneously. Now, another concern that you may have heard or seen online is that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are the first authorized to use messenger RNA, which is true. But that has given rise to speculation about what mRNA is capable of doing. Basically, anyone taking these vaccines, they're all designed to do the same thing. Um, is going to have neurological disorders within one year. Most of the people taking the vaccine will be dead within 10. Let me tell you something. You take the mRNA, it creates plaque in your brain. It gives you Alzheimer's, and I got the studies too. 
So, hey, you think they just put fluoride in the water to dumb you down? Woo! Man, Alex Jones is having a blast, isn't he? No one else has as much fun while making the world a worse place to live in. But the thing is, there is absolutely no evidence or credible studies supporting any of what he just said. As for the claim that mRNA vaccines modify your DNA, it is very important to know that the vaccine's mRNA does not enter our genome. It does its work far from the cell's nucleus, which is where your DNA is. But the fear of what the vaccine contains or what it could do to you seems to be common. Some evangelicals are concerned that it contains cells from aborted fetuses, which it does not. Others worry that it could change the body's inner workings. You might have had a friend tell you that they are worried that the vaccines cause infertility. Those rumors were fueled by a blog post which falsely claimed that Pfizer's vaccine contained ingredients capable of training the female body to attack a protein that plays a crucial role in the development of the placenta. But a few things there. First, experts say of that claim, it's a myth, it's inaccurate, there is no evidence to support it, and there is already pretty good proof that Pfizer's vaccine doesn't cause infertility because during the trials last year, Multiple women became pregnant, and the only one who suffered a pregnancy loss was given the placebo. So it is just not true. And look, the final myth you may have heard is that the risks from the vaccine are somehow greater than the risks of COVID. That is a perception fed by the constant circulation of misleading headlines about people falling ill or dying after getting their shot. For instance, you may have seen this story that was widely shared about 23 people in Norway dying within a week of getting the shot, which does sound scary. But that headline is missing some pretty major context. While those people did die, at that point in Norway, the vaccine was being administered to the oldest or sickest people. And a certain percentage of them were statistically going to die that week, vaccine or no vaccine. On average, 400 people die every week in nursing homes in Norway. And when the World Health Organization reviewed those incidents, they didn't find any unexpected or untoward increase in fatalities, which does make sense. Correlation isn't causation. The vaccine protects against COVID, not the concept of mortality. It is weird that I have to clarify this, but you are, in fact, going to die one day, Mike. Yeah, Mike, stop listening to what Joe Rogan tells you. He's a fucking moron. And those are his words, not mine. That also goes for stories that you might see hyping up scary sounding data from VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's a database that collects stories of medical events following vaccinations. But any layperson has to treat data coming out of it with extreme caution because reports can be entered by anyone and are not routinely verified. One doctor once claimed that the flu vaccine turned him into the Hulk and that report was accepted and entered into the database, which is completely absurd. A drug cannot turn you into the Hulk. Although, admittedly, it can turn you into Captain America, the only superhero whose origin story is a metric ton of experimental Nazi steroids. And look, I'm not saying Vayers is useless. It very much isn't. The reason the CDC collects this data is so if a pattern does emerge, actions can be taken. That is exactly what happened with the Johnson & Johnson shot. The CDC found a potential pattern of rare blood clots and paused the rollout under an abundance of caution. And while some vaccine skeptics pointed to that as evidence that they were right about vaccines being dangerous, in reality, it kind of proves the opposite, that the safety risk of vaccines is rigorously and publicly analysed, not 
secretly buried and somehow leaked to the human football's neon scream hour. And none of this is to say that there are no side effects to the vaccines. There can be. It is just that. Serious ones like anaphylaxis are incredibly rare. 4.7 cases per million for Pfizer, two and a half cases per million for Moderna. And you should know those also occur mostly in individuals with a history of severe allergies. The fact is the vast majority of people can expect at most typical cold or flu symptoms in the first few days after their shot, or maybe just a sore arm, or maybe nothing at all for what it's worth. And anyway, the key thing to remember is that no side effect of the vaccine is worse than the alternative, COVID, a disease that has killed over 500,000 people in the US alone, while once again, to date, the vaccine has been proven to kill exactly zero. So it is more than natural to have questions, but there are reassuring answers out there. And anyone just throwing out questions without acknowledging that probably has another agenda entirely. But the problem is to get anywhere close to herd immunity, we badly need to convince anyone who can be convinced. The truth is, I'm not going to be able to convince the people in your life who are hesitant. The person with the best chance of doing that is you. So if you know someone who is worried for whatever reason and you want to convince them otherwise, don't show them this video, but maybe do try and use some of the information inside it to tell them yourself. And when you are trying to do that, don't dismiss or judge them for having doubts. And I know that that is not always easy. I could have given that guy a pass for holding up the wrong number of fingers, but I couldn't do it. I don't have that level of restraint. I'm a small petty man and that guy is a fucking idiot. But if you think you can do better, it is incredibly important that you try. Or, to put it in the terms that that guy could understand, I've got two words for you. Please just try as hard as you can. We've just heard clips today starting with In the Thick, discussing what it would take to accelerate vaccine production. The Mother Jones podcast explained the process of canceling vaccine patents. Democracy Now! discussed the shortage of vaccines as it relates to big pharma and capitalism. The Majority Report highlighted some of the hollow arguments being made by the likes of Bloomberg News against canceling patents. Citations Needed explained why solidarity, not charity, is the long-term solution we need. And John Oliver on Last Week Tonight debunked some of the popular myths about vaccines. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Counterspin discussing the outsized role wealthy people like Bill Gates are given to speak on public policy. Citations Needed dove deeper into the straw man defense of relying on charity for vaccine distribution and In the Thick had a nuanced discussion about immunoprivilege, moral obligation, and vaccine hesitancy. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... 
We'll hear from you. Hey, uh, this is Nick from California. I'm actually calling in about the Disneyland, the Disneyfication problem episode. I just wanted to say that I'm not sure how I feel about whether corporations should be able to keep their IPs copyrighted or not. That is, they're still using Mickey Mouse and, and using him actively. So it somehow viscerally doesn't bother me as much that they control that domain. He's very much used. There are lots of things, like they talked about Marvel characters that are not used or lots of other intellectual properties that are essentially not used that big corporations have gobbled up. They don't use them. They sit there unused and I think that's a real shame. I'm sure I could be persuaded with a few more segments on why even corporate control over Mickey Mouse is bad. But again, at least they're using it. It really bothers me when properties are basically dead because they're copyrighted and the corporations that own them essentially won't let you use them. But nobody's using them either. They're just sitting there unused. And that that really uh, bothers me as someone who is certainly not their day job is like an amateur who would, you know, likes to do creative works. There are definitely more times that I would have tried to maybe even write something or do something in a creative space. But again, the IP is locked down. And so if I happen to, and it's dead and it's not being used by anyone, but if it was actually successful or I really spent a lot of time in it and, and actually went somewhere, which is unlikely, but still it's just the fact that it can't be used, full stop. It means I don't try to use it. And it does stifle, at least for people I've talked to in similar amateur level type creators. Yeah, it definitely stifles. They should definitely be some rules that if something is just sitting dead for 30 years from the 70s, 80s, and now the 90s, and it hasn't been used and nobody's using it, nobody's produced anything with it in years, that that should become again something that could be used in a creative space again but that's just my opinion and it's self-serving but i definitely have strong feelings about that again for those things that are being actively used whatever you know i don't even care about that as much it's really more the things that just follow forever all right later dude. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. Now today, I, I don't mean for this to be a naked pitch for membership, but I recognize it is kind of going to be that too. But I wanted to tell you about the bonus episode that we just recorded this week because it was a surreal experience. Like, great, but surreal. So first of all, we did a bang-up job. And I know, like, if I didn't do a bang-up job, maybe I would say that anyway. But it also happens to be true. We recorded this great episode exploring the existential dangers of surveillance capitalism. 
Not existential to our survival as a species, although maybe that too, but existential in terms of the essence of our humanity that is being lost through constant surveillance. It's a really, really fascinating topic. But also, the production of the show itself turned out to be this sort of meta-lesson on basically the same topic that none of us could have predicted while we were discussing on the show lessons that we couldn't have predicted. It really couldn't have been more perfect or, as I said, surreal. And it was the sort of thing that I only figured out after we recorded, and so it was the experience of editing the show and realizing what had happened and what had been lost and what was done. I don't even know how to describe or summarize without just telling every detail about what happened, and that's not really how it should be experienced. It should really be experienced as an episode that you listen to, and you get the details in the introduction about what happened, and then you listen to the show and let the waves of recognition wash over you. So I just have to leave it here, and hopefully you will find that uh, enticing enough to make you go sign up and listen to it. And look, like if you want to sign up and listen to it and then cancel because you really don't want to be a member, that's fine. Uh, I, I also give memberships away for free to anyone who can't afford it. I'm just talking about it because I really want for people to hear these episodes. Every time we do an, another bonus episode, I think, well, we've peaked. We're probably not going to be able to do another one that good. And then we do the next one, and it's so good. <laughs> and this is coming from someone who makes a living listening to other people do podcasts and uh, give their opinions and have conversations. And I got to say, we're doing a really good podcast <laughs> that only the members are, are getting to hear. So as always, I would love if you would support the production of this show and sign up as a member, and then you get all of that bonus content as well. But really, this one in particular, again, I really feel like we might have peaked. <laughs> this is a really good and interesting episode, and there's no way we're going to be able to recreate. Uh, I mean, we couldn't have done it this time if we had tried to have the experience we did and make the show we did and have the meta lessons built into it that we did all unintentionally. It's it's really something that should be heard. So check that out. As always, uh, check us out at bestoftheleft.com slash support. And now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks, of course, to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. 
For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.